Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined on the other side of the world by Courtney Nguyen. Ni hao, Courtney. Ni hao, Ben. Hello from behind the great Chinese firewall. <laughs> how, are you, how are you liking it on that side of the wall, internet-wise and otherwise? Overall, you've been in China for three weeks now, over three weeks, three weeks-ish. How's it been? Yes, about three weeks. Yeah, no, it, it's been good. Um, the internet issues are a pain, no doubt about that. What are they for people who might not know? Like, what does that involve? Yeah, so generally, I mean, I mean, just connection-wise, just it hasn't been easy to just get a, a solid connection to the internet. Then once you're on the internet, like Google has been blocked, which um, wasn't the case last year when I was here in Shanghai. Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, they just recently blocked Instagram, I think, as a reaction to all the Occupy um, stuff occupy central in uh, Hong Kong. Yeah. So there's just been so all that. So basically, the way that you get around it is that you sign on to a virtual private network uh, VPN, and that should get you through it. And um, but that's always been spotty as well, whether you can stay on it, sometimes it kicks you off. So it hasn't been easy. But we're making do. I'm trying to tweet. But if you know, results come out five minutes after they happen, please recognize that sometimes my internet <laughs> went down. Yeah. Like, well, it doesn't mean that I'm not paying attention, internet people. <laughs> yeah. No, that's definitely – I hopefully people are cutting you some slack. I've been impressed mostly by how much you were tweeting, especially from Wuhan, I think. That's one – because I had sort of gotten myself on China time before when I thought I was going to be going to China. And so I was still pretty good at being nocturnal that week. Um, and then afterwards, I kind of just gave up. And, yeah, I was impressed. You were you've been You've been killing it over there, I must say. I've been trying. Actually, Wuhan was pretty good in terms of connection. Um, it wasn't so bad. Beijing, the internet, we had tons of problems. It went down early on the first few days. And then in Shanghai, it's been it's been pretty good in Shanghai. We haven't had too many problems, although once you get back to the hotel, sometimes things can get a little wonky. But um, but yeah, no, it's been good. So overall, just Courtney, just from like a tourist perspective, what's it been like spending three weeks in China? It's a very different place. You hadn't. I know you'd spend just in China just briefly before. I think to mainland China, non Hong Kong. Because I think you've been to Hong Kong before, but you were in Shanghai for the first time last year. But you hadn't been to, haven't done this longest stint there. So what's it been like, just on a pure culture shock scale? I guess the most difficult thing for me, and it, it's something that is probably well, I know for a fact is particular to me and isn't really experienced by the other Western journalists that are here. Is I look Chinese, so. The biggest difficulty so far is just that everybody continues to speak to me in Chinese, regardless of the fact. That's been a weirdly frustrating thing because while my white Western reporter friends can, you know, everybody speaks to them in English. Right. To me, they won't. And so it's really hard to communicate. Like, even if they do speak English, it just doesn't register with them that I speak English. You think they would be aware of, like non-Chinese Asians that this is a phenomenon? I mean, like, even if, like, a Korean or somebody showed up to China, you think they'd be able to spot them as a non-Chinese person? Yeah, I, I really don't know what it is, but it's happened throughout. And I thought that it would get better once I got to Shanghai, which is a much more Western, more cosmopolitan city. Mm -hmm. But no, it's still the same here. So 
just that's been been difficult. But otherwise, there really hasn't been a ton of culture shock. It's really just a language thing for me. Yeah. The people have been very nice to the extent that I can communicate with them. Uh, the food's great. I haven't gotten sick. Um, and I've just been eating really local, you know, Chinese food. Cool. So that's been really great. So, yeah, no, it's been it's been really fun. And I really enjoyed my time in Wuhan and Beijing. The only thing is that I've been working a lot because these tournaments, obviously a lot of stuff has been happening. So I really haven't had an opportunity to explore the cities as much as I would like to from a tourist perspective. Well, hopefully this will not be your last time over there and you can veer out more in the future. Let's start just sort of to recap. So what you did on your Chinese vacation, because I'm just (laughs) curious about that. We haven't talked that much during these few weeks is time difference and whatever else. And obviously you've been pretty busy. What was Wuhan like? I mean, Wuhan is a city that a lot of, when I was telling people where I was going to be going, not many people here had ever heard of Wuhan. <laughs> no one knew what it was, even though it's a pretty sizable city population wise. It's not really a world city by any stretch uh, at this point, at least in the Americas. So what was that whole thing like? What was that tournament like? What was the whole letdown from not having Lena playing there? Like just, what was that whole week like? Because that was sort of the tournament I was most curious about of the three. Yeah, Wuhan, the best way that I could explain it is that it was, um, it's like Cincinnati. Okay. The facilities are amazing. I can't believe that they got this enormous facility built in like 14 months, I believe. And they're still building a 15,000 seat main stadium. So the, the current one was somewhere maybe five or ten, uh, 7,000. I can't remember. Um, so the facilities were great and the players really liked that because everything was brand new. The city in and of itself, obviously it's a big city. It's t- like eight, 10 million people, depending on who you ask, but it still feels like a second tier city. It feels like it's still urbanizing. Um, it, there's still rural, um, elements to it. There's kind of as much as like there is an influx of money and industry, There is kind of a, and this isn't ascribing to Cincinnati or Mason, but this is just kind of my observation of Wuhan, that there is a tackiness to it. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, you know, when you're at that where you're aspirational, like you want to be fancy, you want to be cosmopolitan, you want to have all the best things in life, you know, and you want to be Beijing and Shanghai, but you actually don't know what that standard actually looks like. A lot of times you can miss the mark, right? Like you go a little too opulent and you're like, well, this is really, un-, and everybody else is like, well, this is really unnecessary. Yeah. Or you don't recognize is actually from the Western side considered substandard, you know? Like what? Like so, what's considered substandard? Just curious if you have uh, like examples. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Like, for example, like the hotel that, that I stayed at, which was the Media Hotel, was ridiculously nice. Like, mm-hmm. over-the-top nice. Probably, like, the biggest hotel room I've ever stayed in. The people tried so hard to help you. Their English was broken. You know, they're still opening up. So so in terms of language, they, they're still most of the people who speak English, it's – it's 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 pretty broken, sure. But they try, and and they're so nice. I mean, it felt like kind of Midwestern hospitality in a way. Oh, like food wise, you know, like um, we had this wonderful girl. Her name was Adele, who we were like, oh, like the <laughs> rock star, and she's like, yes, I love her. Like she was so <laughs> she tried so hard, and she was like a runner for us. Like whatever we needed, she would kind of go get, and she was the sweetest little thing. But so every day she would kind of come and, you know, ask us if we wanted food, and she'd come back and. Be like, yeah, you know, I brought you spaghetti. 
And you're like, okay, well, thank you very much, Adele. And like, you'd open it up and there were like carrots in it. Mm. And like, it was what they thought was spaghetti and it, it was fine. But you were also kind of like, it's really not, you know, like, <laughs> um, you know, not really, you know, little things like that. So uh, there was still kind of a went to Wuhan that, that makes sense in every way. But they're trying so hard to be Beijing and Shanghai and Guangzhou and Shenzhen to try and like get to that level. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're they're just a little far off from that. Yeah. Like cosmopolitan wise, culture wise, regardless of how industry changes. It'll take time. Um, and it seems like they have money, which is going to yeah, get them back. Yeah, it's hard to know because obviously they have it. They have influx of industry. Um, Peugeot has a factory there. I think that Dongfeng Motors, which is the um, title sponsor for the tournament, right. has like deals with like GM and Ford, like some American companies as well that are working with it. We stayed in what's called the Optical Valley, which is like this. They call it the Silicon Valley of, I guess, Wuhan or China. I don't know how broadly they were making that claim. <laughs> China, because I think Chengdu is actually pretty uh, hardcore with respect to tech. So they have a lot of that sort of stuff, but it's still um, it's still getting there. Um, and you do kind of wonder if they're overextending themselves. You know, they don't really have a great infrastructure in terms of transportation quite yet in terms of rail and all that they want to build like a second airport and like we were at the airport and we're like this thing is freaking empty i don't know why you're going to build a second one right so you know it's just little things like that where you almost feel like they're trying to like make it feel like a big city without actually getting the you know having the culture and all the stuff to back it up okay um but but it was interesting i mean at the end of the day you walk around and you're like wow this is this is the place that birthed Lena. And in, in, in some ways, you kind of were like, and yeah, it kind of makes sense. Not that she's like any of that, but it is a city that I think it's a city that makes you tougher, you know, a little bit harder, maybe a little bit more street smart, kind of like a Pittsburgh. Okay. Or, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it, it's kind of a industrial city still. Yeah. Kind of like, you know, so yeah, um, it kind of Lena's personality somehow made sense to me after, <laughs> after going to Wuhan. But, okay. Uh, but yeah, so it was fun. I mean, it was, but it, it was the tournament itself, like the grounds were great. And, um, and for the first year and given the curveball of Lee Na's retirement, which was dramatic on every level. And I think that it was helpful that Petra won. Yeah, no, I think I want to talk about this, like the whole phenomenon that happened, Petra Kvitova being embraced as like this adopted daughter of Wuhan, because she was a according to the narrative that was created, like Lena's best friend on tour, I found harmless, but amusingly baseless. Like, I just don't <laughs> think these two people ever really interacted that much at all on tour. Like, they No, were by- I disagree with that, actually. But, like, they never, like, I don't think they were, like, fr- they were, like, acquaintances. But, like, I don't think they were, like, ever going out to hang out or anything. Well, I don't think that they were hanging out, but I don't think either of them, like, hangs out. Like, I don't think Lena hangs out with anybody other than Jiangshan. But I do recall over the years, because I know you mentioned that to me briefly, I think over email, and I kind of like agreed. I was like, yeah, it's kind of made up. But then I started thinking about it over like a couple days. And I was like, but they've mentioned their friendship for years. They mentioned they like each other. Like, I think they just like each other. And they're both sort of the likable loners in the top 10. Or yeah, let's put, let's put it that way. It, you like, make it sound like they sit in the WTA locker room in the corner eating paste. <laughs> well, no, I, I don't. I'm not saying that they do that. I'm just saying they're both like pretty contained. They both have longtime coaches or companions. Obviously, Lina has Zhang Shen, and Petra has David Casiza, her coach. And neither of them. I don't know. I mean, 
I just don't think that they... It's not like this was trying to think of who were actual some friends we could think of. Like, it's not like it's Iranian Vinci. And that's how to sort of how it was being portrayed. We're like, oh, you're going to give her your trophy when you win the tournament. Yeah, it's like, yeah. no, really? that's definitely true. Really? Okay. That's definitely true. I'm just saying that, like, to temper just like this was all made up. I mean, they, because I have asked, like, both of them numerous times over the years, like, seriously, you guys are friends? And they're like, yeah. And then it's like, why? Oh, they're, she's funny, da 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 da. And I would ask both Petra and Lena, what exactly do you guys talk about? Because I have a hard time imagining that you have conversations in English. Yeah each other you know and like both of them would be really coy and they're just like well i'm not gonna tell you what we talk about and like petra petra said the exact same thing in wuhan like chinese press were asking her like do you have any funny anecdotes and she's like well private conversations are private but like so either they have this secret super bestie friendship (laughs) that they're just like being coy about or they literally cannot recall any of the conversations (laughs) that they had i don't know where exactly it falls but I'm just op- I'm just I am personally open to the possibility that yeah that they were that they actually did like talk all the time not all the time like Skype but when they saw each other in the um in the uh, locker room ten minute chat which is more than I think either of them typically does with anyone else so it's all relative to them yeah no definitely all relative to them that's that part's fair and relative to Lena Petra is definitely one of Lena's favorite people that part I buy it's <laughs> just like can, can I tell a really cute anecdote. Please. They call. So if you go back and you listen to Petra Kvitova's uh, speech in, at China Open, she refers to Lina both in the in the like, actually, I think the first and last words of her speech are champ. Mm-hmm. She's like. And so but what I heard from a Chinese journalist was that Lina was telling CCTV in an interview or some documentary that um she and Petra call each other champion champion because they both won their slams the same year. Okay. And so in 2011, they called each other just champion. And then this year, like when Lena won her second one, like Petra called her champion champion. Like she would be like, Hey, champion champion. Oh, cause <laughs> which, she w- <laughs> Yeah. Cause she now had to, which just amuses me to know. Because <laughs> it's it's just it's it's cute and it's kind of funny and it's like I don't know a sense of humor that I wouldn't really necessarily ascribe subscri- I, I just I wouldn't I don't know but it was very cute and so yeah it's cute I'm sure it's meaningful but it's cute and okay the whole thing was like I said the whole thing was totally harmless the whole Petrick bit of a that's adopted daughter of Wuhan and hopefully it sticks around because they need somebody to latch on to now in China without uh, Peng Shui becoming a relevant person anytime soon that was one question i have just sort of more related to all three tournaments but i guess especially wuhan is did you get a sense that this would be a sustainable place for tennis without lena because that was one of the big question marks as soon as she retired there's this huge push by wta into china uh atp a little bit less so but also pretty notably there too i mean they're in tianjin this week for another international tournament what do you think this post lena landscape looks like when she's no longer there to sell tickets because she was selling tickets to Wuhan. A lot of people bought tickets for this year's tournament and even this year's Beijing thinking that Lina would be there. I, I don't think ticket sales drives the success of tennis in China. I mean, we've seen enough matches in China that you see it's not sold out. Yeah. The stadiums are not packed. That's not the issue. The issue is more a sponsors. If the sponsors will come and deliver the money, that's one thing. And B don't forget that these tournaments do have government backing. 
especially with respect to Wuhan in particular, the government is pretty well involved with that tournament. So to the extent that there's any shortfall or something that needs to be caught up, I would presume, I don't have a basis for this, this is just my sense, that the government would step in and, and you know, kind of bail out a tournament uh, to the extent they felt that it was necessary. Or worthwhile, yeah. It's not like, right, exactly, or worthwhile. So it's not like we're going to see... Like next year, oh, all these tournaments fold up because they can't fill stadiums because of Lee Na. No, I don't think that that's that's the the overarching um, message that I would take. But the the question it does become whether you can deliver sponsors, whether the government will continue to back the tournaments as as heavily as maybe they 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 initially did. Television coverage will CCTV, you know, cover certain tournaments. I mean, Wuhan was not on CCTV. Wuhan was on a secondary channel. And even then, it wasn't like you could watch every single match, mm-hmm. you know. So, I think that you know those are the those those are the three key revenue streams for Chinese tournaments. So, sponsors obviously is a driving force uh, with respect to the tournaments. That's applicable everywhere. Television contract everywhere. But the third thing that I think does make China somewhat unique is the the government involvement and backing of the tournaments. Um, and, and so that's really where they can kind of, there's some flexibility or lack of flexibility if the government decides to, to cut and run. So that, that yeah, it's it's just really hard to say. But I, I, in speaking to some of the Chinese journalists, I did a, a roundtable on SI.com to read just because I think the site from, from the three writers that yeah. I talked to is great, is that that's a question mark and no one really knows if the sponsors will stick around. So that that's really the big the big issue. Okay. That makes sense. But what, but what... that is just to say like I don't think that ticket sales are an issue. Okay, that's the China fine. Open the China Open has succeeded without almost ever like selling out a session. Yeah, I was surprised watching Federer last night and how not not full that was at all for Federer. I'm just Federer I well, see filling stadiums everywhere. And I realized it was late. No, even... it's not it's actually it's actually not that Okay. Uh, I have since learned since I've been here is that both the China Open and Shanghai both fall during the national holiday, like the China national holiday, which is like a one week, like no one works everybody, and everybody actually kind of goes home or goes on vacation. So that kind of actually has a huge impact on the China Open specifically because this year it fell during the final weekend. So and then with Shanghai, today is the first day I think that everybody's back to work, which is and today is Thursday. But basically everybody like took off and left like Beijing last week and stuff like that. So that has some impact um, on things. And apparently the Asian Games also was a big impact as well on on the China Open and the coverage and stuff. I, I don't know. I was just told that this year was like a weird year for for Beijing. OK, so are people are people like other journalists you talk to, are they optimistic about tennis you know, continuing to grow or do they think this is sort of the bubble's going to burst? I didn't get the sense of the bubble's going to burst, but I did get a a lot of caution, a lot of, a lot of just a lot of shrugs, you know, like we just don't know what's going to happen. Um, And that difficult. I mean, obviously Chinese tennis, you have Peng Shui, but she's, the problem is that Lina was just lightning in a bottle. She just was this charismatic figure but at the same time, also a very controversial one. We have to accept that in China. And, and I have definitely seen that 
on many levels. Well, you know, there's a lot of just, um, you know, with respect to a lot of this is just uh, Asian culture or Chinese culture specifically, or maybe it's just particularly her relationship with the Chinese government and the Chinese Tennis Federation or her relationship with the city of Wuhan. It's not like as Lena was retiring, right, and going through her retirement ceremony, I'm following Derek Jeter's retirement on Twitter. And Derek Jeter in the States does not hold the he's not the number one athlete in America. Yeah, he definitely isn't in 2014. He might have been closer to the top in his peak, but right now he was a pretty irrelevant person the last few years. I wouldn't. He's not like, Le, yeah, he's not like LeBron. No, you know, in terms of the, the or Peyton Manning, he's not top exactly, five. I don't think or Peyton. So you know, but whereas Lee Nas, like I ask everybody, and I'm like, no, really, is she the number one athlete, like current athlete? And they're like, oh yeah, by a mile. Wow. And I'm like, well, this person is walking away and you guys can't even fill out like the Beijing stadium for her retirement ceremony that you publicize days in advance. Wuhan was like 75 percent full, maybe when she bid farewell that one day, although they didn't give any advance notice of that either. Yeah, it's just it's very confusing to me, I have to say, you know, that, that you have the number one athlete of like a, a country of this size. And it just really didn't feel like it was being I felt like I was covering it more than 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 like some Chinese media, you know, and that felt really odd. It was weird. It's just like this weird tone of just like the Jeter stuff is so far on the other end. The Jeter stuff as a non-Yankee lover was pretty just like so saccharine and so mm-hmm. prolonged and just like we get it like you like him, but stop making it like this weird funeral type thing where everyone's like pouring out like at 30 ballparks around the country and it's just it was way too much and it was not really deserved i don't think because he was not like an all-time great in terms of being like a top five mount rushmore type baseball player lena on the other hand is the biggest international athlete china's ever had arguably in a sport that's relatively you know outside china not like she was a top table tennis player badminton or something that's really china specific yeah, and it seemed weird that it wasn't more similar tone for that. It seemed like the two could have been a little bit flip-flopped, but it's an interesting parallel, the Jeter, just, the Jeter thing. I hadn't really connected those dots before you said that. Yeah, I just felt like the Jeter thing was so over the top and just, like, in his history of his career. I mean, there was just so much, like, love, and people were, like, getting on board. And obviously, I'm not on Weibo. I don't speak Chinese. So maybe I was missing something you know, uh, in terms of some of the coverage. But, you know, every day I would go down and grab the the Chinese papers, like when I was in Wuhan, and, like, the local Wuhan paper would have photos of, like, Maria Sharapova on the front page and not Lina. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that, and maybe the press is just different here, but, like, if it was, I I just can't imagine that that would be the case. Like, if, if Lina retired, it would be covered, like, for the full week, but really, they were putting the tournament, they were like promoting the tournament without her as though she like didn't exist. Maybe that's what they yeah. were told to do. I mean, maybe that's I, what if the government sponsored well, the tournament. Maybe the government was like, we got to sell this tournament without Lena in the future and got to make this tournament viable. And Lena is in the past already. Sure. But that doesn't make sense, right? Because if you have Lena, like right now you have Lena, this tournament is, in the, we're talking about Wuhan, is the inaugural Wuhan Open. She's just retired. She's in, you go out of your way, it almost felt like, to not include her, to not to not ride her coattails. 
I don't give them enough credit as to say to say that that was intentionally like, well, this is the new landscape. Like, let's buckle up and get used to not having Lena. I'm like, no, I mean, I think that what you do is you beg her and you march her out for everything to try and get eyes on your tournament because this is the first time that you're 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 having it, you know. So it, it was a bit it was a bit confusing. I, 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 it didn't really make sense to me. OK. So Petra Kvitova won Wuhan. She beat Jeannie Bouchard in a Wimbledon final rematch. It was slightly more competitive, oh, significantly more competitive, but still pretty routine straight sets. Tour moved on to Beijing, which was won by Sharapova, beating Kvitova in the final. And on the men's side, Djokovic played Burdich like a drum. The more notable thing about Beijing, I think, overall, in terms of long-term stuff with Serena, um, pulling out for the second consecutive tournament after having a viral illness issue in Wuhan against Alize Cornet. She was leading, but then stopped the match, uh, her first match there. Uh, she played a couple matches in China, and, but then pulled out with a left knee issue. Courtney, what was that like? And just sort of judging from Serena, how concerned should people be about this affecting the rest of her career? Because it was <laughs> some odd parallelism with Lena leaving and having left knee issues, and then Serena all of a sudden gets the same thing. Um, I think that I, I I didn't see it as as that uh, you know uh, cataclysmic or or it, it sure. didn't seem no, like no, no. a, a, a crisis. Just, yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I I think that the biggest obviously the biggest I guess the question right now is more just whether or not she's going to play the WTA finals. Um, and uh, if she doesn't and she decides to shut her season down, that would be understandable. Um, if she decides to, to play it, that would be understandable as well. But I think that the biggest thing for her is to really, okay, she got number 18 at the U.S. Open. Now let's, like, you know, start your assault on 19 in 2015. And does it make sense to put your body through, you know, unnecessary wear and tear if you're not 100% fit and if you're maybe not 100% motivated? I mean, the only thing that really she needs in Singapore is to like hold off Maria for the number one number ranking. One. Yeah. Right. And I, and I can't think that she wants to just like hand Maria that number one ranking, but at the same time, I don't know. I mean, does it make sense? Maybe not for her to play it, but um, you know, even on that bum knee, she beat Lucy Safarova in three sets. So I don't know, but, but it was a very odd set of circumstances because she did have that injury she beat Lucy Safarova. She did not do post-match press, which some people seem to think that like like that's optional. It's actually not. Like if you're requested, you are kind of you do have to show up right. to do post-match press conferences. And so Serena skipped out on it, issued a statement instead. Um, I kept asking the WTA if she was going to face a fine because that is what the handbook says. Yep. That if you skip out on press, you sh- you're supposed to be fined. They didn't get back to me immediately. Uh, but uh, in the morning, I did receive an email saying that she was not going to be fined because she needed to get treatment on her knee that was going to take a long time, which is why she skipped out on press. But again, I actually don't think that that's a valid reason to skip out on press based on the handbook so and the rule book, but whatever. Um, so no, she did not face a fine. Um, and then the next morning withdrew. But Ben, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. Okay. The issue of withdrawals, because Serena withdrew uh, 24 hours, less than 24 hours after Simona Halep withdrew from the China Open with a hip injury. She withdrew just an hour, maybe two hours after beating 
Andrea Petkovic in three tough sets. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of discussion on Twitter as to whether or not, you know, uh, that was good for the tournament, whether she should have, I don't know, just uh, I, I think our friend from the keep, Carol Bouchard, was was probably the most vocal in terms of criticizing uh, Halep's withdrawal. Um, so I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that. Was how, what made Halep's uh, withdrawal different from Serena's? Was it pro- problematic, et cetera, et cetera? I think retiring the same, pulling out the same day optically, and especially pretty quick. I think it was, from what I remember of the timeline, and you were obviously there, you might know better, it felt like less than an hour after the match that Halep, there was news that Halep was pulling out of the tournament. And it was the second time Halep had done it this year. She'd also done it against Madison Keys in Rome when she had locked up a top four seed for the French Open by winning that first match. And it was, she didn't need to play Rome, and she just made the finals of Madrid. Everyone was pretty forgiving. This one, I think, was a little bit iffier because it was such a long match against another pretty good player who could have made it more of a run in the tournament. And she's denying the tournament of a match by doing that. The thing that the example that the counter example that comes to mind for me, and I actually used this when I was filming uh, a segment for the Tennis Channel Best of Five show at some point about sportsmanship, um, was a few years ago in Luxembourg. Caroline Wozniacki, when I think she was number one in the world, or at least at least top five, Caroline was playing Anna Kramer, who was a Luxembourgish player, and she was injured, but she was up like a set in f- f- 3-1, and she got all the way to like 5-1, and then she retired because she didn't think it would be smart for her to play the next match. So she like played the match until she got close to the end, and then she pulled out to allow Kramer to advance, allow Kramer to get the points and the prize money or whatever and and to have the tournament get another match and to keep a player in who would be good for the tournament to have in i think that's the sort of blueprint of like the ideal sportsmanship thing for the tournament but at the same time Halep doesn't need to care about the tournament she's like we've said before tennis players are independent contractors and it's not really Halep's responsibility to make sure the tournament has four quarterfinal matches so it's selfish what she did uh, but at the same time, it's a selfish sport. Does, is it a great look? No. Would it be better if she waited till the next day to pull out for optics? 100%. Yes. Uh, Anna Ivanovich actually just did the same thing in Lind this week. She pulled out after winning, but many hours after winning her match there. Uh, it's a little bit similar. So, yeah. So, I, I just think waiting till the next day would be better optics. But, you know, Halep is pretty, pretty blunt and direct in how she carries her career about for better or for worse and for most time it's always for better i think people appreciate the sort of honesty of it but here i can understand why people uh got rubbed the wrong way by the timeline of what she did does that make sense it totally makes sense and yeah it's it's really just an optics issue i mean because i think you said is right ben that what she did is honest that you know by withdrawing nearly immediately after winning her match she ensured that people weren't going to buy tickets assuming that they were going to see her the next day right so to the fans i think that it's it's probably the right move but behind the scenes and just from a business perspective it does it does matter um you know and and the tournaments don't want to see that i think i'm sure the tournament would rather just have a player in you know playing a quarterfinal than uh not to have a quarterfinal oh, yeah. um, and then i think the other thing as well to recognize is that it does this does have an impact in the locker room that other players see it they are aware that she's now done it twice. I talked to a few players who rolled their eyes a little bit and had some sarcastic things to say about it. Mm-hmm. Reputationally, it doesn't help things, and you have to be in the locker room with these people. But 
hey, you know, you do you and it's fine, but just recognize that there can be blowback when that happens. And it is generally considered probably not the sporting thing to do. It's Azarenka-ish a little bit in terms of the pullout she had before. That's the one that's the main person who sort of comes to mind for this sort of pattern of things, winning and then which are dubious, not dubious, but just like not uh, the generally preferred timing of withdrawals, I guess, is sort of the footsteps she's following in there. And one of the players that I did talk to did, in fact, use extremely injured (laughs) in their discussion of the situation. So The ladies know. They know. They know. (laughs) Speaking of extremely injured, let's move on to Rafael Nadal's intestinal tract briefly. Which is not something we've discussed on the show before, I don't think, that I can remember. Phil Nadal played in Shanghai. Okay, he won two matches in Beijing. And then in Shanghai, he revealed in his pre-tournament press, I guess, that he was dealing with appendicitis or some early version of appendicitis. Appendicitis is swelling of the appendix, which oftentimes is associated with the appendix rupturing or exploding or doing bad things to you. Um, Nadal assured everyone that he was treating it with aggressive antibiotics or something, and he played on, and lost in straight sets to Feliciano Lopez. This, this seemed, when I was hearing about this, you know, obviously all very second, third hand, I was very confused by all of this, uh, because I know, I've know i known people who've had appendicitis, and I think it's probably happened to tennis players at some point. It's something kind of thing you kind of get immediately operated on, usually, in my experience. Um, and so for him to stick around and play a first-round match in Shanghai with this relatively urgent medical situation struck me as very bizarre and a weird risk-reward calculation. I don't know what the thoughts on the ground were there. Obviously, we're not doctors, but this just struck me as weird. Courtney, I don't know about you. Definitely weird. Um, I think that what you said about risk-reward is exactly what everybody's trying to figure out. What is the point of playing Shanghai? If if I were right now to get a stomach pain and go to the doctor and they told me that I had appendicitis, I would abandon the rest of my trip and fly yep. home yep. and have, have it taken care of. And... Um, you know, obviously, we don't know exactly specifically what all we know is what Rafa told us. So we don't know, um, you know, specifically what the doctor told him, how early stage, how successful the antibiotics were, things like that. But knowing that one of the big risks of appendicitis is that it does rupture and burst and fill your abdomen with bacteria um, and things can get kind of a problem. And <laughs> I just, so I just don't see that. But the biggest thing that I don't understand is okay, you try to play through. But when yesterday when he said that he did he wanted to have the surgery after the World Tour finals, that's when I just really was like, what are you talking about? Because throughout his comeback, not throughout, it's been very short, but in Beijing, Rafa was adamant that his trip to China was effectively practice and he had zero expectation. And all that he wanted to do was kind of play out the rest of the season and then be healthy so that when December came, he could have a proper offseason and prepare for 2015. Putting off that surgery seems to impede that timeline. Like, why wouldn't you just have it now and see if you can get better in time for the World Tour Finals? And if not, oh, well, but at least you'll be healthy in December. Right. As opposed to wait and have the surgery middle of November and then hope that you heal in time in two weeks so that you can start your training block. That just the timeline just doesn't make any sense to me. So he admitted that he hasn't really thought a ton about it, that, you know, who knows, maybe when he flies back to Mallorca, his doctors will tell him something otherwise, and I sure hope they do. But yeah, it was just really perplexing, and and, and I'm not entirely sure I understand what the motivation is, because 
as we saw today or yesterday in when he played against Lopez, he it's not like he took a bunch of antibiotics and he was all fine. Like, you know, he said he was dizzy after the match. He said that, you know, he definitely wasn't sharp, that he didn't play well. So I'm not really sure what the what the upside is to all this. What the point is, yeah. Speaking of to use to invoke her again, it's again a little bit Azarenka-ish. This sort of weird, <laughs> you know, playing through something when there doesn't seem to be a point, and when you can't play your best. Like maybe there's an appearance fee involved here. I would not put it past Shanghai to have appearance fees for top no, players no. because of the travel issues, even though it's Masters ma- events generally a- don't. It's a Masters. No, but I, I, I don't know. I think that attendance has been relatively weak for a Masters there. I wouldn't be shocked if there was something for Nadal in the offing. I really wouldn't. But I'm, I don't have any basis for that either. So, uh, but yeah, I just think I, hopefully he doesn't have anything happen with his appendix that makes him regret this. And just risking it through his schedule of his schedule to play Basel, Bercy, and London. Like those are missable tournaments, big picture for him. They really are. He hasn't. He's never won Bercy or London, but he's not going to do it in this condition. So what's the point? I mean, I would presume that he's playing Basel with a massive uh, appearance fee, so that would at least under. I would understand that financially. Um, Bercy, he should just skip. Yeah, completely. Like, what's the point of that? Like, just play Basel and then go on to London, or just play none of them and get your surgery. Well, yes, absolutely. That is number one. Like, don't do any of it. Just go get yourself and be healthy. And given the amount of bad luck that he keeps talking about, why are you risking it? Yeah. <laughs> why seem- are you tempting fate? It seems like the universe telling you to shut it down, Rafa. Just, yeah. just, li- just listen. Ha- have a gut feeling about this one. Pun he in- does have a gut feeling. I know. Um, but yeah, no, I just I just would really love to see Rafa obviously healthy and firing on all cylinders in January. Yeah. So I just don't really understand the decision making here. And I just don't think that like taking the rest of the year off would impact his chances in Australia. Not at all. Because you know what? He drops down to number three. So he's in what? He, the worst case scenario is he faces Novak in the semifinals of the Australian Open. Best case scenario, he faces he probably, Roger. It's, it's, it's fine. It's not that Exactly. Bad. You're good. Don't you worry. It's all right. Like, I don't know. It's it's very perplexing, and it, it's everybody's just scratching their heads on the ground. Not not no one really knows. Um, at least not as far as I know. No one really knows what exactly the, the rationale is. So it's been a while since we did sort of a general show. Obviously, we did a Lena episode, and then Courtney did her show with uh, our friend Joe, which was great. Then one thing that came up a while ago, speaking of Rafa, speaking of Spanish tennis, that we should talk about on here is the appointment of Galileo Garcia as the Spanish Davis Cup captain, becoming only the fifth, I believe, Spanish oh, female Davis Cup captain in history, by far the most uh, prominent country to get it. I mean, the previous countries that had Spanish captains were like Syria and Panama and San Marino and something like that. So... Courtney, what, what were your thoughts on the appointment itself and then on the immediate thorough backlash from pretty much every Spanish male player, and especially Tony Nadal, who is not a player but is very outspoken quite frequently as a mouthpiece very near Rafa? For me, I thought that the appointment was interesting. I mean, I thought it was cool. Hey, you know, a woman at the helm of a Davis Cup team, a prominent Davis Cup team. Yeah. That sounds great. You know, obviously she still has to deliver and, and deliver results and be good. But I was like, okay. 
But, you know, my re- so that was my initial reaction. But then the reaction to the backlash was just entirely different. I just thought I just could not really understand why she became the lightning rod as opposed to the Spanish Federation for all the Spanish players and particularly Uncle Tony. I mean, at the end of the day, she took the job. The, the Spanish Federation said it was fine. Even if, if she had some pissed, role in appointing herself, which it sounds like right. she sort of did. But it even still, like somebody signed off on it. She's not exactly the, a dictator the federation, there. Exactly. The Federation ratified it. Yeah. So to me, like, you should be pissed at the Federation. Like, I don't really understand, like, training your guns on her. I think that that's when it's, the whole thing really turned blatantly sexist to me. I mean, setting aside Tony's thoughts that are completely ludicrous and ridiculous. I mean, I think that they're the criticism. I read one interview with Feliciano Lopez where I thought that his criticisms were fair, which is that he was like, this has nothing to do with like woman, man, like whatever. We just think there were more qualified candidates. So they didn't even approach like Juan Carlos Ferrero, Beresategui, um, a few other uh, a former Spanish players yeah. that sound like the players really would have liked to play for. And if that's the case, then that is something that the Federation should have to answer for. But all of this total bullshit stuff from Tony, oh, the lock, you know, she can't go into the, the men's locker room. Oh, she has no experience with men's tennis, so she shouldn't coach it. And by the way, I don't think that a man should coach Fed Cup. It was super weird. I'm like, what are you even talking about? Like, you weren't an elite level men's coach when you started coaching Rafa. No, yeah, you really just weren't. That's the thing. I think Andy Murray even made that point about about Amelie Moresmo. It's like, yeah, he was like, I, I'm pretty sure Amelie could kick Tony Nadal's ass on the court. Yeah, right now, yeah. like that doesn't really make sense, you know. And it's and it's just so stupid because it's and it's just such a red herring. All of the the sexist, you know, uh, arguments that Tony's trying to make because it does take away from and distract from legitimate criticisms of the higher. Yeah. You know, I mean, and and that's the thing. Like, I don't think anybody should be like, "Yay!" Like, she's gonna do a great job. We don't freaking know, you guys. But she will suck for like legitimate reasons, and not because of all the the bullshit reasons that are being brought up to try and uh, you know, undermine her in the public eye. And that was really what was infuriating about the discussion about her hire. I completely agree. I completely also agree. Unlike Amelie Moresmo, who I think has absolutely unassailable credentials, uh, Galileon Garcia is a relative I mean, obviously she was a top 30 player i mean she was a player i'd heard of she wasn't a great player by any stretch um and her connection to men's tennis whatever uh but she is not as rock solid of a hire as amelie moresmo and she just didn't doesn't make immediate sense even the same way as if trying to think of some other random spanish man who's like ranked in the 30s uh who in the past uh i don't know uh um <laughs> Uh, like Ramirez Hidalgo or something. Right. He got hired. That wouldn't have made immediate sense either. Yeah, but so that part, I understand saying, huh? That just seems like a weird hire. But the criticisms of it, that from, from Tony Nadal, Verdasco also said things about the gender. Nadal's main complaint was that he had never met her, which was a weird sort of complaint. <laughs> like that he needs, and I understand that he's a obviously very relevant player in Spanish tennis and that he feels entitled to being a, a decision maker that all you know just choices must pass through him we've talked about that whole phenomenon with him before yeah but it's just the whininess of it didn't make sense especially in the wake of what just happened with spanish davis cup let's remember mm-hmm. this happened after they went and lost to and got relegated by brazil 
Brazil is a terrible tennis country. Seriously, they got beat and knocked out by Thomas Bellucci on clay. Like, what is this? Is a this is it should be a moment of reckoning for Spain, and they should have no business objecting to anything that ha- that is a consequence of it. Like, okay, you wanted to stay in the world group and keep Moya around, Ferrer, Verdasco, Nadal. Maybe you go to Brazil and play your D level tennis and save yourself from relegation. And I do think on another level, because we haven't talked about that Davis Cup either. I think the Spanish relegation really reflects terribly on Davis Cup as a competition because it really makes it more and more a competition about attendance and not about quality of countries. And I don't think that's a great thing to measure. That's what Fed Cup has been for a long time. And I think Davis Cup is getting more that way with the Spanish relegation. So Yeah, I think the problem is is that like countries will look at the draw, right? And be like, Do I have a good do we have a good chance? Yes. Okay, then we'll commit. But if like they Federer, don't... Federer didn't commit till this year. Exactly right. Exactly right. And especially in the Spanish case, like with the you know their new captain, you know their old captain was Carlos Moya, very well respected. Rafa's like mentor, and you know there were tons of people who sat out. Fernando Verdasco didn't bother going to Brazil because he went fishing. Yeah. He decided to go fishing. So I could imagine that the Spanish um, federation was like, you know what, you say about Davis Cup, this is what you get. I wouldn't even I wouldn't put it past them to almost like appoint her to punish like the guys. And the funny and thing like, is, like they're because of Olympic requirements, they're all gonna have to play in Exactly. Exactly. She doesn't have to motivate anybody, they have to play. Yes. So I the whole thing makes zero sense, like all of it. And it's just it just became this completely dumb, like let's give like Anybody who has a sexist comment, like a microphone, the whole, if you guys haven't heard it, like the whole Tony Nadal calling in to this radio show that Galileo was on and like that, like ambushing her and just like, is so ridiculous. I mean, I can't even imagine. I really can't like, like, and I think that it's a sorry look into kind of where a lot of heads are at when it comes to men in Spain and how they view women and how they view women in positions, how they talk about women in positions of authority. You know, maybe this is just Tony Nadal as it's one isolated person, but it didn't, I didn't get the sense that there was outrage, collective Spanish outrage uh, with respect to, to Tony Nadal's comments, which would make me see, uh, assume that they were probably more the norm than not the norm, which is, you know, kind of a bummer. Did Rafa, do you know if Rafa got asked about this in China at all? No, I don't think that he was. I don't think that he got asked it at all. I mean, I just, I don't personally like asking like questions like that simply because I just, it just feels like courting controversy. And I just, I don't want to, it just wasn't about that for me in terms of Rafa in China. But yeah, no, nobody, not as far as I know, did anybody ask it. That's the thing. When we talked in the past about Andy Murray and sort of applauded him for talking about women's tennis with like degrees of respect and treating it like it's an actual thing like that's sort of what we're talking about here not just Rafa Rafa is one of them Rafa is one of the ones who is not someone who ever sort of weighs in on women's tennis you know I don't want to say respectfully because I don't think it's disrespectful per se but he doesn't really give it a time of day when he's thinking about the world of tennis yeah it, it's it's these sort of moments expose silently held beliefs that I think are more common than we like to think they are in tennis. We like to think of tennis as being this egalitarian society, equal treatment and everything. And it's a lot of people just keeping their mouth shut that make it, make it feel that way more often than not. And then 
Occasionally they open yeah. their mouths and people are surprised. Right. No, Andy Murray is the bird that sticks out <laughs> when it comes to the ATP and, 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 and treating women's tennis like it's a legitimate endeavor. And he tweeted about As, this. He was like, so cool. Yeah. Like, oh, well, that, that was like, that was when he sort of, for me, that was in an interesting <laughs> month on Twitter. That was the, <laughs> that was the one where I was like, that's no longer about him just picking the right coach you know, for him in his game, it happens to be one. That was like him fully becoming a card carrying feminist somewhere that I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, yeah. And then, so let's actually, because I mentioned it, what did you think of, of Andy Murray tweeting his referendum support? We haven't talked about this, I don't think. I just think that the way that he did it was not smart. In other words, if you have an opinion, he should have sent that tweet a week in advance, two weeks in advance, a month yeah. in advance, like whenever he had kind of, but to do it on that day, I think, was was really just too hot button. It didn't allow a discussion about his ideas. It didn't allow kind of investigation. It also, it, like, people's emotions were pretty high oh, about yeah. the random vote. And it was the, all of the, the kind of not exit polls, but polling before the vote seemed to indicate it was going to be very, very, very close. So, yeah, it, it, it just the timing of it was really, really poor. But um but hey, if the guy has an opinion, he has an opinion. People can't be pissed. I mean, I, some of the tweets that he was getting on his on in response to it were just absolutely absurd, really disappointing stuff. And uh, but whatever, I don't know. I, I found think it's it, gonna be one of those things people are gonna keep. It's gonna be something. Yeah, it's gonna be something that people keep calling him on forever. I feel like it's gonna be one of those things. Like that's just the way British grudge holding works. I guess it happens everywhere, but this is something that clearly, I don't think it's gonna go away. It's a storyline for him quite a while. And I totally respect him doing it. I mean, I'm all for athletes being political because uh, so few dare to be in this day and age. So whatever your beliefs are, yeah, I, I, I stand by his decisions to do it. Also, I watched the referendum night, and it was such good TV because there were so many accents involved. It was like every <laughs> every like five minutes, once it finally got heated up, every five minutes there would be like – it was sort of like Eurovision. They'd be like, and now we go to you know County Dundaby, and it's like – these are the votes from Dundee. 400 no, 74 yes, and then six ballots we couldn't read. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was really fun. Uh, if you, but it was also they also have the worst election graphics. So they just had like bar graphs and stuff that were completely legible. And did they have a russert? Did they have a russert? Um, not Didn't really. Not no, there was no dry erase board. If that's what you mean, but um, damn it, no. But there were just these the greatest weirdly, election night ever. There were these really weirdly bad graphics. It was just like here's like a because they don't didn't really use a map because I'm used to obviously U.S. elections having like the electoral map and they fill it in red state, blue state, and it's pretty visually pleasing. Yeah. Um, this one there wasn't really a map because it was all a one popular vote. They had these weird, like, side-by-side -side squares, and the squares would be divided into, like, magenta for no and, like, teal for yes. And it was <laughs> it was just impossible to read, and they weren't, like, grouped together, and they would never show you, like, anything about, like, what the actual... Well, they would occasionally show you, like, what the actual relevant totals were. Um, but, yeah. Anyway, I had fun I that night. Well, it's not relevant to anything, if, but... Yeah, I wonder if Nate Silver predicted it. I don't did know if he, he did. Did he in on the referendum? Or does Britain have a Nate Silver? Probably not. Probably not. They're not cool enough for Nate Silver. Let's be, let's be real. Sorry. Sorry, Britain. One day, one day maybe you will deserve a Nate Silver. But until fair. then. Yeah. 
I read some Nate Silver stuff about the Senate elections are coming up. It's nice to see that he's still, but it doesn't it seem much less thorough than his stuff when he was only doing that. I feel like we, feel like we as a society have stretched Nate Silver too thin. We wanted too much from him. Oh, he just he yeah. It I I definitely believe that. I definitely believe that. Too much number crunching with respect to the Royals and the A's that you know. How was watch? Because yeah. I'm going to be over there watching the Orioles, which is my team, or in the ALCS. I will be having to watch them from Singapore at some point because I'm going to be over there starting with game five. Unless I get swept, they will. I will be over there during that. I'm just mm. already embracing like what it's going to be like trying to find places showing baseball in the middle of the night in Singapore. Probably not easy. No, I think that place will be your hotel room with a stream. There you go. We're going to do uh, some quick questions here. We got a lot of great questions for you. We're going to try to move through them uh, at a decent clip just to get through a bunch of them. We already had a fair amount of show. Here we go. Uh, let's start with one from Radazana, who asks us, given both that both year-end championships and tournament of champions um, is, are moving to WT Asia, uh, will Linz, Luxembourg, and Moscow survive? Just a note on that. Tournament of champions, which is in Sofia for the last year, is being reformatted into this weird 9 through 20 competition with four round-robin groups, I guess, plus some wild cards to add it up to 16 or 12, I guess. Moving to Zhuhai, China, which is apparently a place. Yeah, so what happens to the sort of fall swing? Because it's weird seeing players in Linz this week. It feels like that part of the season should have should have died. Yeah, but it only feels that way because the eight have already been decided. But geographically, I don't think it's coherent no matter what. No, that's definitely true, but that's just going to happen once you move the end of the season to Asia anyway, um, as opposed to everybody finishing up in Europe. In terms of survival, it'll be tough for uh, Linz, Luxembourg, and Moscow, just like it's already tough. They're going to have to pay out a lot of uh, appearance fees. Um, Moscow's fields have gone way worse in the last Yeah, Moscow's just an afterthought. I mean, it's an afterthought at this point. But at the same time, just remember that with everything on the line, that down makes from 1 through 20, everybody, you know, people are going to be chasing points to qualify for whatever competition. It does incentivize a little bit more. You know, I do like that the new tournament of champions in Zhuhai is not going to be tied to international tournaments because that was a bit dumb because like Venus, for example, yeah. wins D- Dubai and can't qualify technically Madison for Keys. Sophia. Madison Keys wins Eastbourne can't you know so that was pretty dumb so I, I appreciate that it's at least just by straight ranking which is good um, and that again makes it much easier to kind of figure out qualification scenarios chase points etc cetera, etc cetera. I did so I don't mind that I didn't hate the Sophia format I just would have done that same thing I would have made sure that it counted premieres as well also <laughs> premier would have included Perankova this year which Bulgaria would have loved because she won Sydney and yep. didn't get her automatically in uh, I kind of like the Tournament of Champions as a format, but I just think it needs to be the week before the World Tour Finals yes. if it's going to happen. If you're going to have a, a filler week to rest up the top players, which is a good thing, like the men do it, they have a week off between Bercy and London, it needs to be the week before. You can't have this weird denouement anticlimax thing after. It's just such an afterthought and such a weird, unnecessary timing thing. Um, and especially, like, you know, if you... The final. It'd be cool, like especially if they did this one. Maybe they could do it like make the world the women's champs like top seven qualify, and then the Zhuhai champion gets in or something as like a random th- eighth person. Uh, no, 
Okay, well, that's fine, too. I, I just, would rather have number eight at, in Singapore than number 20. That's very fair. Interestingly, on the Sophia thing, I was, I don't know if I've said this on the show before last year, but I was talking to John Isner randomly about it in Bercy last year, and he was, like, really wishing the ATP had an equivalent. He thought it was, like, the best idea because he would always qualify for it and never for London. Because <laughs> it was like, because he always went to 250s, which essentially would be the way in. And he's always a top 20 guy or usually a top 20 guy. So, Yeah, that's very true. Hey, I mean, bottom people line want is to that pl- make money. Yeah, if the money is there, if a tournament's willing to pay you $2.1 million prize purse to hold this 9 through 20 event in what is, I am told, is uh, Zhuhai one like, or was designated China's most livable city. Okay. Interestingly, uh, but the Portland yes, of China. it's basically the Portland of, oh my gosh, could you imagine Chinese Portlandia? <laughs> Should be amazing. Be the bird that gets put on things. It, or actually be the bird that gets taken off things. Cause actually birds are all, all kind of all over things here. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Peking duck. Uh, <laughs> how was the Peking duck by the way? It was amazeballs. It was okay, so good. 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 It was super good. Uh, but yeah, so it's a great idea. I just, yeah, I think the timing is terrible. I think that it takes away from the WTA finals because you sit there. I know for me as a writer, like pumping up the WTA finals, like, and the WTA season culminates. Actually, no, it doesn't culminate. Does it? Like I have to like choose my words very wisely because the WTA finals is not actually the year end championship. Like it's not like the year end anything. It's just the championship because it is not the last time of the year. So that becomes all very frustrating, but I also understand the WTA doesn't want to like force its top eight to stay in Asia for an extra week just to like futz around because they have to wait for the tournament champions. It you should know? be next week though. I mean, it should, isn't there a week? Um, yeah, next week we're recording this on October 9th and it should be, there's a week after this where they could have it and then come Singapore. I don't know. I think they could just the current order is pointless to me. Well, yeah, I mean, you what would you do with Moscow then? I would move Moscow to February. Oh, that's an interesting call. I can see that. I see what I see what you did there. Yeah, I would essentially yeah. get rid of all of this uh, European fall, so long as those determinants are in Asia. I'd move it all around, yeah. and I and I put Pattaya in the fall. I would take Pattaya out of February and put it in the fall. Interesting. So I have thoughts. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> Uh, next question comes from Game Set Tweets, who asks us, if, I, if you had five minutes with Fabio Fanini, what would you do slash say? And Courtney, why don't you tell us why Fabio Fanini is again, quote unquote, relevant? <sighs> well, Fabio Fanini lost to a Chinese wildcard, uh, Wang Chu Han, yeah, uh, in straight sets. Great match from Wang. Um, who finished the match with a backhand down the line winner. That was great. Anyways, Fabio Fanini goes up, shakes Wang's hand, kind of, and kind of uses his elbow to shove Wang out of the way. And then... And is there any idea why the, he did that? It, yeah. Well, he was trying to... Basically, he shook first. So Wang was on the inside. Fabio was on the outside. Fabio, though, shook first. So when, the, when Wang went up to shake hands, he was in Fabio's way to get to the changeover chair. Okay. So, but like Fabio could have just ducked under. He could have just waited. He could have done many different things, but he chose to shove him. <laughs> Fabio could always have done a lot of other things than what he chose to do. Yes. Um, and he did shove him pretty hard because he did shove, because Wang was like leaning to get the umpire. 
uh, Fabio shoved him, he kind of like fell back and had to like take a step forward again to shake hands. And Wang, I think, was just like dazed. He didn't know what the hell was going on. Like he, like in terms of the win, like it wasn't like he was trying to cut off Fabio. Right. He just like had didn't know. He was just you know beside himself. So Fabio then goes to his changeover chair, packs up, takes a water bottle, throws it in the direction of the crowd. It actually doesn't go into the crowd, but apparently falls short of it. And then as he's walking off the court, he throws the underhanded bird, uh, which, you know, anybody would know what that was. Yeah. Anyways, TV cameras picked it up and he was uh, fined $2,000 by the ATP. The video went viral, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why we're talking about Fabio Fanini right now. Again, if I had five minutes with Fabio Fanini, I would simply roll my eyes and walk away. Because the bottom line is that Fabio Fanini is never going to change. He's just going to do him, and that's it. Like, you can't chastise him. You can't yell at him. You can't tell him, hey, shouldn't you do something else? He's just going to be him. And I just, at this point, I'm kind of fed up with it. I don't find it entertaining. You know, it's one thing to smash rackets and to act like a doofus on the court, like basically a court jester that no one takes, you know, seriously, that he's just going to dance around. And quite another thing to be so, like, to be offensive to your opponent, to umpires, and to the fans. And that's where he's crossed the line. And I think the ATP should have fined him much heavier than what he did. Yeah, to answer Game Set Tweets' question, I would use my five minutes to yell at the ATP. I don't think Fabio is worth talking to. I think this is entirely on them. This is about their accountability, about their ability to control their people. Like, you can't make this acceptable behavior a slap on the wrist behavior. And this goes into the weird sort of state the ATP is in about not really being a, being a tour and also a union. They need to have a disciplinary arm that cracks down on events like this. I mean, it stopped being cute quite a while ago for Fabio with the incident at Wimbledon where he got fined a lot and was, you know saying things, and then the Krajanovich incident where he was calling him like a piece of gypsy shit or something, I don't remember exactly what it was, and various other things he's done, and some of it is amusing. Yes, Fabio is a ridiculous human being, he's a cartoon villain in a human world, but it's not acceptable behavior, and it should not be allowed to continue, and he should be suspended at a certain point. You need to make it, hit him where it hurts, and so far they haven't done that, because Fabio is making enough money right now that these fines are just complete drops in the bucket and he can laugh them off. And and so they just need to do more. And there needs to be a apparatus of the ATP that is set to do these kind of things. Because I'm not sure they are equipped to do it, except with the exception of someone violating something that goes into a doping system or a tennis integrity thing in terms of gambling. They don't really have the teeth on these issues and they need to grow some. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it becomes incredibly frustrating just because you, you do wonder whether or not, because obviously the ATP is a partnership between tournaments and players. You know, they don't own the tour, they don't own the players. The players are independent contractors. They can do whatever. But at, there comes a point where you do have to step in and say, this is not the product that we want. Now, when you don't fine and you don't discipline a player for sending an offensive gesture uh, a fan's way. And it's not even just like he flipped off the fans. Like it was on TV. It was beamed all over the world. There's video of this incident. And as we have learned in American sports, when there's video of an incident, it does (laughs) elevate um, the seriousness of the problem because it is something that gets played over and over and over again. And it's something that people can always point to. I think I know what you're talking about. Do you? I think I do. Do you? It really, it really um, sort of elevates the situation, yes. It really does. It really does. And so they're, they're, the kind of – it just screams kind of like a, a, like an old boys network, right? Like, oh, he's our guy. It's locker room. He's like, oh, he's a nice – you know, because when you talk to people, people are like, oh, Fabio's nice. Like, Fabio's hilarious. Like, 
tons of players on tour really like this guy. Yeah. But he's a he is a dick on court. Like he just is. He's an embarrassment. Yeah, and it's not like in a oh that's amusing kind of way, like in the way that like Golbus is. Golbus is just he just smashes a racket. Yeah, he has arguments with umpires, but then he's super charming about it and he's like, Look, I'm not mad at you. And you know, it's 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 fine. It's a little bit more fun, I guess, than what Fabio does, which is actually being disrespectful, affirmatively so, to his opponents and to the fans. And Golbus that's is never where... disrespectful. Yeah. No. No, he's, you know, I mean, other than calling Roberto Batista a goo princess. Yeah, but, dur- <laughs> but during matches, he's never disrespectful to the fans. He's not really disrespectful to the umpires either. He'll occasionally get in a little bit of a pissy match with a player. But usually but that's, that's just competition. And that's usually mutual too, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's just, you know, at this point, I mean, Fanini can Fanini all he wants, but whatever. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted by it, to be quite frank. Yeah. And it's no longer amusing at this point. I mean, and maybe, it's just maybe, no longer relevant. Like, right. if some irrelevant player is going to act like a fool, then he's just acting like a fool. And I'll yeah. just I'll keep, I'll keep posting those things because people find them funny and amusing. And you know, but are does anybody take you seriously right now? No, people yeah. don't. And and the ATP show. you. And it's on the yeah. ATP. It is on ATP. It really is. Next question. This comes from Masha, second serve. Novak using his influence again to procure a wild card for Troitsky, which happened in Beijing. Novak Djokovic uh, was got brought there as a player undefeated in Beijing, owns that tournament essentially, won it again. Um, and Victor Troitsky revealed that he had that Novak had helped him out in getting a main draw wild card for that event. Uh, Troitsky's had a pretty good, uh, really good comeback from his uh, suspension, his one-year ban. Uh, he did well in Shenzhen, beating. Ferrer and did I think okay in Beijing as well. Masha asks, is there any way to make the wildcard system less open to abuse or is this unavoidable? I don't think that's abuse. Strong like, you know, word to use. I don't think that it's a you know, any sort of yeah, I mean, is it at the end of the day, the tournament has discretion to give out a certain set of wildcards to whoever it wants to give them out to. And then to the extent that Novak has you know, some influence at a tournament, then so be it. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, a one-off incident, it's, and it's not a one-off incident, obviously, because like weirdly, <laughs> Novak has been at the center of a few questionable wild cards. He's pulled these uh, strings before, yeah. He's pulled strings. He's pulled strings. Um, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of the same thing. Like, cro- like Novak can ask, and the tournament can say no. I would be more inclined to train my guns on the tournament than to the player. You know, just right. similarly to to the Tony Nadal thing. It's like I'd rather be mad at the Spanish Federation than the person who made the request. Right. So I, th- I think that's what Masha's. I don't think she's necessarily attacking Novak here. I think she's just talking. She says about the the wild card system in general. So I mean, I think that part it's just on Beijing. But should players should tournaments listen to players requesting wild cards for their friends or? brothers in Novak's past case I mean I don't know should or shouldn't they're going to there's nothing you can do to stop that I mean you know a player at I mean it's not like I don't know now if if Novak was to go to them and say if you don't give this wild card I'm not going to play your tournament that elevates it to a different level of abuse because then you're holding the tournament hostage to the extent that Novak's just going to them and saying hey my buddy can you give him a wild card 
Now, there can be wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yes, what the repercussions are. Let's keep this guy happy. He's the king of Beijing right. sort of stuff. Like, sure, there's going to be a little bit of that. But that is going to happen in any sort of decision that comes with a top player coming to a tournament. Tournaments cater to Serena, that they don't cater to Maria Sharapova, um, that they don't cater to Rafa, to Roger. I mean, this isn't just a Novak issue. It, no. it, so I don't really – I don't know. I don't really have a big problem with it. I don't think that there's an abuse issue is my point. I mean, if, if a player wants to ask, they can ask. If a tournament wants to give it, they can give it. And if the tournament, you disagree with the tournament giving a wild card to XYZ player, then you you train your guns on the tournament. That's all. I, do, I just don't think that Novak did anything wrong here. I don't think that there's necessarily a problem with the wild card system. I don't know. I think it, I, I take it a little bit differently. I think the entire wild card system is inherently open to abuse well yes and i mean there's, there's all these incidents even at the challenger level of of random people getting wild cards they don't seem to deserve and the djokovic troisky stuff is just extremely obvious but there's lots of occasions around the tours where agencies who own the tournaments or you know run the tournaments get wild cards to their players i mean like miami is the easiest to diagnose example of this they give their wild cards almost exclusively to IMG players. And is that fair? Not really. It's a pretty random association, but it's just sort of how it works. So long as you have wild card spots in draws that are non-merit-based by definition, you're going to have abuses of this. And this just happens to be one of the more clearly traceable examples of it, or more interesting traces you can find in terms of one player helping another player um, and essentially controlling two spots in the draw. Does it, is it, does it hurt anything? No, especially because Troitsky is a pretty legit player, ranking-wise and performance-wise. I mean, you can say whatever you want about him, you know, hit the cloud over him from his suspension, that's fine. But, I mean, he's a very, he was a totally player who belonged in that tournament in terms of skill level. With Marko Djokovic at, at getting in the main draw of a 500 event in Dubai, that was a little more dubious because he was just not that caliber of player whatsoever. So, yeah. So. But, I mean, I guess my question is, my question is, what, how do you fix it? Do you fix it by getting rid of wild cards completely, if that's what you want to do? Right, I, that's, I, I, right, I, exactly. Which I would be fine with on some level if they decided to do that, but that would be a pretty radical thing. And I think overall wild cards do more good than bad. Because, I mean, getting local players in tournaments right. is great. And getting, you know, people like Leighton Hewitt has gotten so many wild cards in the past five years. I mean, people want to see him and he hasn't had the ranking to justify it all the time. That that's fine. That that's good for the game. I think almost always. So if it gets if it yeah. gets used in less than upstanding ways, sometimes and like I said, I don't think this is necessarily a real abuse. I think Demarco Djokovic one was much worse in terms of nepotism. Yeah, I think it's overall pretty harmless. Yeah, I mean that was my only point was that like I just kind of was accepting the wild card system as being something that exists, and I was operating under the assumption that the wild card system is just going to exist in perpetuity, that you're not going to get rid of it. So once you assume that the system does exist, you know, is there anything that you can do that would completely insulate it from abuse? Probably not. Yeah. You know, WTA or ATP or you know coming in and saying no, that that's pretty shady. Please don't do that. Like et cetera, et cetera. But you know, so long as it exists and so long as you do give these tournaments, like so long as you give these tournaments free reign to do what they want with a small subset of wild cards, like, you know, I think you're right. I, I think that they do better. They do more good than harm. I remember a few years ago, Miami even like gave a wild card to Garbi Muguruza, who I didn't know who she was at the time. Yeah. She got the wild card. She's IMG client, obviously. And she went 
through and I think she beat Panetta. She may have beaten somebody else that year as well. And like ever since then, she's always been a player that's been on the back of my mind, even though she totally rankings wise and results wise did not deserve that wild card whatsoever. But hey, like it kind of worked out. Yeah. Just planted the seeds. So I don't know. I, I just yeah, I agree with you. Not, the Marco Djokovic wild card notwithstanding, I think that the, the wild card system is 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 fine to the extent that it can be fine because it is inherently a conflicted system. There you go. All right. One thing, you mentioned Djokovic being the king of Beijing. We got a question from The Tennis Island, which is a new uh, Twitter account and website run by David Kane and Victoria Chiesa, which you all should check out. Uh, those kids do good stuff on their island. Asking, what is the level of fan enthusiasm on the grounds of newer Asian events? And I say this because like, the signs you see in the stands of these tournaments are pretty, you don't see them anywhere else. The one that came out today that got a lot of people's attention about Roger Federer being better than free Wi-Fi, which is just a weird non sequitur of a sign. What, what, what is the buzz you get from tennis there? Like how is the fan culture to the extent you've been out and able to get around the grounds? How is it different? What is, how do these people enjoy their tennis compared to the rest of the world? Yeah, it, it's just that tribal quality. It is unique. In China, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this anywhere else where so if you're like a top 10 player on either the men's or the women's side, you kind of have this little tribe of fans that are diehards that have signs that have T-shirts that paint their faces, all these sorts of things. Bring flags and, for countries they're not from. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, and uh, you know, wait at the hotels um, for the players. I think it's really unique and I think the players really do appreciate it. But I think that it is important to kind of emphasize, and this is something that obviously I've seen now for three straight tournaments, the volume of fans is still something that needs to be worked on in China. Um, these are not sold out tournaments. Generally, the the fans tend, generally tend to be younger, obviously, college students um, who have the days off to attend tournaments during the day session, which is something that occurs obviously elsewhere where uh, early in the tournament, you, it's tougher to fill out the stadiums. Both Wuhan and Shanghai, the tournament is actually, the tournament site is almost 45 minutes to an hour outside of the city center mm. by car. And then also, um, especially in Shanghai, this is a really big issue. And Wuhan, I think, pretty sure too. There's really no public transportation to get you out there. So you're really kind of stuck, like in terms of how do you get fans out there and, and um you know, and so Shanghai has been talking about building a high speed rail to get them to get fans from the city center to uh, the Kijong Stadium. But I think that right from an optics perspective, you can all see it at home. The, the, the cameras don't lie. These are not packed stadiums. Yeah. Even though the money is there, the tournaments are there, the facilities are there, um, the fans have not been coming. And in, in, the, in speaking with. Um, both Chinese journalists as well as uh, I talked to, to to some uh, tour people as well. They've all kind of said, you know, the fans are really the ones that we need to deliver. And until the China Open and the Shanghai Masters in particular, because those are the tournaments that have history in China, until those tournaments can start delivering fans on a regular basis, they never are going to even be the top of the top tier of whatever tier tournament they're in. Right. So until that happens, like, you know, it's very difficult to kind of consider no matter how many awards the, Ch the Shanghai Masters gets that it's an elite Masters tournament because you just don't see the crowds there that you might see at a Cincinnati or a Rome or, you know, it, it feels a little bit more kind of like Madrid, yeah. you know. No, I totally agree with that, especially with, yeah, Madrid's the right comparison because it's mandatory for the women, for the women to 
it just doesn't have that same sort of soul to it, I guess. A tournament. I mean, definitely, you see, you see the you see the diehard nerds, and that I love seeing that around the world. Yes, obviously, exactly. as a tennister myself, I love that someone brings like a printout with like several photos of Angelique Kerber on it. Like that's crazy. That's awesome. Like way to go, Chinese person who loves Angelique Kerber and gets us here once a year and gets really psyched about it. That's great, but it, it's also not great to see the fifty empty seats next to her. Right. So because go. that's that's one. It's a good example of one thing that I think we've brought up a number of times on the podcast, which is that like tennis can always count on tennis nerds for subscriptions to tennis TV, to watch tennis channel, to uh, buy tickets, to fly cross country, to go to tournaments. Tennis nerds will always be there for you because we are just unapologetically in love with the sport. And no matter how screwed up it is, no matter how much you futz around with marketing. Etc. Etc. Tennis diehards will always be there, but can you get the casual fan? And with respect to tournaments like the China Open and Shanghai Masters, can you get the corporate fans? Can you sell the skyboxes? Can you fill the tournaments? Can you can you get an ambiance that is unique? The players excited to be there. That's something that the China Open as well as the Shanghai Masters are still trying to kind of develop, and that's going to just take time and it's、um, uh, cycles of tournaments to continue to to build, but. As you look forward, and you're like, well, there's no Lena. Roger's not going to be excited about tennis right now. Like, are people going to be as excited about tennis in like ten years? I don't know. Yeah, the casual fan still is a tough one to to、uh, act to kind of mobilize. I think. Cool. There you go. Last question. We'll do. We got we got surprisingly a few questions about this actually, but I guess we've gotten both. On our individual accounts, a bunch of questions about it over the course of the last few weeks. From Dropshot and Lob asks, "Can you talk about what you think of the Singapore Rising Stars competition? Any ideas to improve it?、Uh, over the last couple of weeks, there's been voting wrapping up for the Singapore Rising Stars event. It's an exhibition event that's making its debut at the World Tour. At, sorry, at the WTA Finals this year. It's supposed to highlight the next generation of rising stars and." Who's going to be in their place? And I think a lot of people were pretty sure, like what kind of players would belong there, who made sense. I think people were thinking Madison Keys would be a good example.、Uh, Benchich was the main one who seemed like a lock. She's just teenagers doing great big things, and everyone's really excited about what she can do in the future. Svitolina seemed like an obvious choice. There was also two reserve spots for Asian players, and for them, it seemed like、uh, you know Krumi Nara has done pretty well, and she was one of the nominees, and. Zarina Diaz is doing very well rankings-wise, pretty quietly this year. But she's from Kazakhstan, and、uh, even like a Luxka Kumkum was an outsider who's doing pretty well. Had that big win over Kvitova, and the voting closed. And it didn't seem like Courtney. Do you know if the results went purely by voting? Because I couldn't tell what happened with Rogowska. I would have. Well, no, actually, I do know that、um, some things did change because of scheduling commitments. Okay. And then something changed, and they can't do it now, or something like that. So, the four women who got voted in, or who got who who emerged as the four rising stars、um, from Asia, it is Zarina Diaz, which is the one that made everyone's expecting, or was it common expected one, and then、uh, Zhang Sai Sai, who is not expected by anybody,、uh, is a Chinese player, and then from the world, Monica Puig. Who、uh, won a tournament this year in Strasbourg, and but still was not considered one of those upper upper echelon、uh, young rising stars. And then Shelby Rogers, who has had a very very good、uh, second half of 
uh, making the final in Bagestein, but generally not, and beating Jeannie Bouchard, notably bageling her twice in, in the first round of Montreal, but generally not doing a whole lot otherwise and not being a top 50 player or anything. This were very confusing results, because with the exception of Puig, who I think is a pretty big following in Puerto Rico, it didn't even seem like a popularity contest result. Like, that was the thing. If people were just like, oh, you know, it's it just a popularity contest. These votes never work. Um, it seemed like the popular ones would have been Benchich, first of all, been the, one of the most popular ones. There's a lot of hype about Benchich. People really like watching her and talking about how good she can be. And then Madison Keys is also a pretty popular player. Uh, so just the results didn't make any sense to me at all. I don't know if they make any sense to anybody. No, congrats and respect the hustle. I know that Shelby Rogers definitely like had a whole campaign going and made videos. Oh, did she? I didn't see those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she, yeah, she, she worked for it. And, 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 you know, that's great. I mean, like, for example, like a Madison, she didn't really tweet about it that much. Let that be a lesson to all you win an election if you don't campaign. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm just really disappointed because I, I really do like the concept of it. You know, I like if I were to go to Singapore, I would love to see, you know, a, a match between two legitimately legitimate rising stars. We should also point out that that there while there are other players who some people were like, why aren't they on the nomination list? There are other uh, criteria, which is like you couldn't have been playing like Mo- Moscow, Linz or Luxembourg, I think. I don't remember why. I think maybe the travel or something. I don't know. Definitely, definitely Moscow, yeah. Yes, but anyways, you couldn't be um, entered in any of those. And obviously Bouchard qualified for the World WTA Finals, so she wasn't on the Rising Stars list. I just I, I just really thought that the the hands-down vote, I mean, the easy pick, is Benchich, Keys, Karumi Nara, and Diaz. Yeah, and Svitolina was, 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 would have been an acceptable interloper yes. for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, because, yeah, so that was all kind of perplexing, you know, and it just ends up being a little weird, too, because like, for example, like a Muguruza totally deserves to be on that nomination list. Obviously, she's going to be going in doubles. Um, and maybe her schedule just didn't allow for her to be qualified. I'm not sure. But but she's somebody who I would consider a rising star that should be voted on. So it was all a bit odd. But yeah, I, I'm not sure the voting execution was. I don't think that you should be able to vote five thousand times. Here's the thing. I think that they should. I think it's a great idea to have this exhibition match. I think they should do it again next year. I think they should completely make the picks internally, even if that calls of WTA favoritism and people thinking it's biased or whatever. And it is. But this is a aspect of the event that's totally inconsequential in terms. There's no ranking points here. There's no mo- prize money being awarded. I don't think maybe they get some sort of per diem or something. But overall, this is something that they can just do by handpicking people, and it would work out much better, I think. Because in the votes early, before she got passed over, one of the leaders was Olivia Rogowska, who I like. who's a very, very nice girl and a decent enough player, but she's just made no sense at all for this. Like She's neither rising nor a star. No, she's never been in the top 100, and her most notable match was in 2009, when she took a set off Dinara Safina, the U.S. Open when Dinara was really struggling, and eventually lost third round to Kvitova. That was like the first Kvitova thing ever. Yeah, that was just didn't make sense. So they need to have a much smaller nomination list because don't nominate people if you don't if you're not okay with them getting there. That's the rule of any reality show. Don't put someone in the cast if you're not okay with them winning because it can happen. Number two, yeah, just, just do it yourself. 
democracy is overrated sometimes. I'm sure it'll be a fine event. I'm sure these player the crowds will be happy with it, but it just doesn't have the same buzz as having Benchich there. Benchich is the main one who just had to be there, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that the Benchich, once it was clear that she wasn't going to get voted in, I think that that was the problem is that it kind of undermined the whole uh, the whole exhibition, the whole process, because if you're going to look at the WTA right now, she is not just a WTA rising star. She is the WTA rising star completely, you know, and so that 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 becomes a problem. Or so maybe, you know, maybe WTA picks one of each and then leaves the other one to fan voting. But there should be they need to guarantee that certain people go not their favorites, not the marketing favorites, but the people who deserve who've earned the spot. Yeah. So there we go. So we'll be in Singapore. We'll see how it all goes. Uh, that's I'm finally heading over to Asia for that, and I will be very excited to see you and recount all the stuff there. And it's good to get to talk to you over the Skype as well here. It's been nice. Thank you guys very much for listening once again. If you want to follow along with the show when you're not listening, you can do so by following us on Twitter, at NCR underscore tennis. You can also like us on Facebook, Facebook dot com slash ncr podcast if you have a question for an upcoming episode you can email us no challenges remaining at gmail.com you can also subscribe to our feed on itunes and any other podcast app of your choice and get the episodes delivered to you automatically thanks for listening guys and we will talk to you again soonish how do you say goodbye in china courtney i don't know i don't know let's go with that i don't know (laughs) bye guys bye Now that the time has come Waiting what seemed like forever Gather your broken dreams Put all the pieces together And everyone will see What you were meant to